Could you open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2? If you need a Bible, we have some Bibles out in the foyer, some really nice church Bibles, and I'm going to be on page 1,672 today. But before we start, I just want to uh, just want to let you know that as your pastor, I want I want to do great things for God. You know, I want to do great things for God. I mean, don't you want to do great, Matt? Don't you want to do great things for God? I want to do great things for God. The only problem is, what does that even mean? What does it mean to do great things for God? Does, me, uh, does it mean doing things like, okay, now we got that building built, now we need to build something else, building bigger and bigger and bigger buildings. Is that doing great things for God? Is it winning thousands of people to Christ? Is the, are the lights doing it again? All right, here's what Chris said. Put your phones in airplane mode. Is doing great things for God having a light system that is flawless? That is doing something great for God. Or maybe as a pastor, having fancy suits, have blue hair, TV spots, millions of people watching you, be able to say the name Jesus and people get healed. Is that doing great things for God? Having a son that wins a football game and no seconds left yesterday. My son at Wheaton won the game. Oh! Is that doing great thing for God? You don't have to clap for that. I don't... I don't... I really don't want that. I think what's dangerous about even saying that, that I'm going to do great things for God, is that often we forget who we're doing it for. We usually becomes the focus. I usually become the focus, and God is a corollary. He's actually bringing me glory if I do it for Him. Often people want to do great things because it means I'm significant. Wow, you do great things for God. As if I am a little bit better, a little more special. Or if I can do great things, God will love me more. I think some people really believe that. If I can lead more people to Christ, if I study the Bible more, if I lead a class, God has to be more pleased with me than your average sit-on-the-pew Christian, right? He's got to love me a little more. Or if I can do something that is impressive, I can then give it to Jesus, all of that glory to Jesus, and maybe keep a little bit of that for myself. That's not too bad. Americans, we are always on the hunt for bigger and better. Our whole marketing and consumerism is always to have the next best advertisement, make more margin, more profit, bigger, better, mainly because I think we believe that it proves I'm worthy, I'm effective, I'm special. Trevor had me listen to this podcast this last week about a pastor who wanted to build his church, he said, to 50,000 members in 50 different cities across the U.S. And he wanted to do this. He's going to do it for God. The only problem is it imploded. And after years of trying to force this to happen, his ambition crashed and burned and left thousands, I mean thousands of hurt people, in his wake, because he wanted to do great things for God. So, is it wrong to want to do great things for God? Well, we have to first ask, what does God want us to do? I think that would be a little bit more 
important? What are the great things God is asking us to do? And in Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11, Paul gets excited about something. Like really excited about something. And I think Paul reflects the excitement of God. And I think this thing that he's getting excited about is a great thing all of us should be excited about. Should be something we pursue. But sadly, it's nestled in a portion of Scripture that is probably the, one of the most well-known portions in all the New Testament. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is a gem. I mean, it's brilliant. It shines so bright that sometimes we forget the reason it's written. Some scholars believe verses 5 through 11 of Philippians 2 is the first hymn or the first creed of the early church. But it's bordering something that's a great thing. So if you follow along, let's read. Starting in verse 1. Paul begins to write, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing, nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And everybody said, Amen. That's what it's all about. So the structure of this is pretty simple. What you have in verse 1, and then you're going to find it in verse 5 through 7, are kind of bookends that are basically bordering what Paul wants to get at. Paul, what makes Paul happy. Or what Paul wants to complete his joy. That same thing should be what we want in the church and in our lives. And I think that thing that's being bordered by those two and bookends is what is a great thing. But nobody talks about it because it doesn't have the pizzazz as a 50,000 member church in 50 different cities. In fact, it doesn't have much of a glimmer or sparkle at all because that's the point. It's not about us. The great thing isn't about us. It's about Jesus. To glorify Him. 
And so what is that great thing? Verses 2 through 4. Make my joy complete. By being one in spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, you want to know what's really great? In humility. Value others above yourself. That's so boring. (laughs) I want to do something amazing. Value others above yourself. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So you got to remember the context. Paul is writing to the Philippian church. He loves the Philippian church. He has amazing memories with them. It says in verse 1, he loves the partnership they have together in the gospel. Not only that, chapter 4 talks about how they just kept giving to Paul generously. Out of their poverty, they kept giving to Paul, taking care of him, partnering with him. But the problem with the Philippian church is they had significant infighting. There was a lot of squabbling. In chapter 2 it says, there's a lot of people in here that are grumbling and complaining. And they're not shining like bright stars in the heaven. Chapter 4, he's talking about these two ladies, one named Yudia and the other Syntyche, who, even though they're godly ladies and they work hard for the gospel, they're at each other's throats. They cannot get along. They can't get along. So in other words, we can say the Philippian church was populated with real people just like you and me, full of red blood and problems. And so Paul is trying to get them to move past their disagreements, their personal pet peeves, their issues with one another, and work together being one in spirit, he says, and one in mind. Because conflict's going to happen. In every church you go to, conflict happens because it's full of sons and daughters of Adam, you and me. All of us are broken. All of us are extremely needy. And we're all a bit insecure. There's a bit of insecurity all of us have. And so because of our brokenness, there will always be someone in the church who has an opinion on how things should be done. And usually that opinion is different than somebody else's opinion. They'll disagree Arguments will start, people begin to talk behind other people's backs, factions form, people feel slighted, forgotten, misunderstood, hurt, which leads to people even leaving church. What does Proverbs 13.10 say again? Oh yeah, where there's strife, where there's strife, there you will find pride. And what Philippians 2 is an antidote to pride. It's how to destroy the poison of pride. In fact, in verse 2 where it says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having one spirit, being one in spirit and one mind. If we put it in modern phrasing, it would be like this. Will you guys just stop it and get along? Get over yourself. Work together for Jesus. For His name question is, why should I? You know, you can ask it. Why? Because you've been poured into. Because like an empty glass, you've been poured into. Now, some of you are like, but it's hard. It's hard to get along with people. I'll tell you, full disclosure, full disclosure, even I, your friendly neighborhood pastor, get exhausted with ministry. 
I know a fellow pastors I talk to will tell me they feel underappreciated, insignificant, used up, and empty. I know many people that go to our church that feel empty, exhausted. It's at this point where we jump into chapter 2, and we need to see both of the bookends because they're going to give us reasons why we need to be unified and treat other people better than ourselves. And the first reason is because you're poured into. If you are a Christian, God daily and abundantly pours into your life His person, Himself. I actually think this verse 1 is a Trinitarian statement. You'll see what I mean in a second. But it's going to be a series of four if clauses. Meaning they're conditional clauses. If you do this, then this. But one commentator said these aren't really if clauses. They're true clauses if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, this is true. So in a way they should read like, since then, this should be true about you. So I want to talk to the person here who sees their glass as empty. Some of you in here are not sure if you can keep going. You feel insignificant. There's some of you who feel underappreciated. A lot of times moms do. Nobody sees me. Paul is giving us four realities that are true. That you're going to find in Christ. And we are to live by faith, not by sight. I think sometimes the reason we want to feel significant with other people is because it's so immediate and it's so visceral. It's right now. But Paul wants us to live by faith. And faith means what he's going to say is true this moment. Even if I don't feel it. Even if I don't see it. It's true. It's true. In fact, if you're a Christian... God is always pouring into you. So the first thing he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, meaning if you are a Christian, you are united with Christ and he is, the word encouragement is the paraclesis. He offers you support, comfort, counsel, strength. When you are in Christ, Scripture says, there is no higher significance than that. Ephesians says, you are filled with the riches of Christ. Colossians says, you are now seated at God's right hand. Romans 8, 17 says, you are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. This moment, everything he owns is yours. It's yours. And the problem is, we're always pandering after human significance. And if you are, you're trading down. Stop trading down. Let me show you. Go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. This is one of these stunning statements by Jesus that takes a lot of meditation to really understand. Or to believe, I'd say. It's John 5, verse 44. And so Jesus is looking at the Pharisees, and I think even some of this crowd that's following him, and he just asks them a simple question. One verse. How can you believe? That means believe in Jesus. Believe in the Father. The Father sent the Son. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another 
But do not seek the glory that comes only from God. We are on a mad hunt for significance from others. And he's saying, if that's all you want, you're going to miss the glory God wants to give you personally. The problem with always trying to get everybody's affirmation to try to feel special with other people is human beings are so fickle. Oh, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Three days later, crucify him. One day people are going to think you're incredible. The next day they think you are nothing. It's funny, my son, their game was incredible. They won with no time left. If they would have lost, they would have been out of the playoffs. My son's last real game forever. And I was down low, like, oh. Watching the game going, oh, I'm dying. I'm not going to survive. They throw a 45-yard bomb. They catch it. Whoa! <laughs> My cloud nine. It's the greatest day. If all I'm living for are those moments, I'm going to be a roller coaster. It's weird. Sports is a weird deal. Do you know when it comes to any sports league, only one team's going to win, but somehow every other team, I almost made it. And if we would have made it, we would have won. And then your team wins the championship. What about next year? <laughs> Can we stop this roller coaster? But we do this with human relationships all the time. I go to church. Somebody says, that was a great sermon, Pastor Chris. <sighs> Thank you. Pastor Chris, that sermon really wasn't that good. Oh. <laughs> Jesus says, you're united with me, Chris. And you're accepted by the Father. And the Father looks at you and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? It goes on, it says, if any, any comfort from his love. And there's some argument, who is his? Is it Jesus? And there's, this seems to be a Trinitarian pattern because the next one says, if any common sharing with his Spirit. So his... A lot of scholars will say he's talking about the Father. The Father loves you. Even Paul says every day, I kneel before the Father in Ephesians 3.14 to know how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow, God loves you. And it's wide. And it's deep. And it's long. I like to look at it like this. 1 Corinthians 13 is amazing. And I don't think we go to, there, go to it too often because we fail it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no, longer, no record of wrongs. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. And I do. I fail all the time. It's, I keep record of wrongs. But wait a minute. This is love. And if God is love, then that's how God is with me. And God is patient. And he's kind. And he keeps no record of wrongs with me as far as the east is from the west. Man, is that filling to believe that fills you up. And then it says, if any common sharing in his spirit, and it's talking about when the spirit of God lives in you and he lives in other believers, there's something that happens between you where you start seeing the world the same way. Even people who are not like you, when you are Christians, there's a commonality that is encouraging. It's overwhelming. And the first service sitting over there is 
If you guys know Bob Ford and Paul Slaughter, Bob Ford and Paul Slaughter married sisters. So they're brother-in-laws. And it's the weirdest thing because they are nothing alike, if you know who I'm talking about. Like Bob Ford is like Jack Black, kind of crazy, very emotional. Paul Slaughter is, it's like the odd couple. Remember the odd couple where you had this, this real dirty guy and you got this super clean guy, you know? But when those guys are together, they love talking about Jesus. And I like being around them because they both do love Jesus. It's really cool and it's encouraging and it fills you up. And when you are in the Spirit and you're with somebody who's in the Spirit, there's a filling. And then it ends by saying, if any tenderness and compassion. So Jesus fills you up. Then you got the Father. Then you have the Spirit fills you up. And then tenderness and compassion is from the church family. It's meant to fill you up. To make you full. There is nothing like being in a a church that is family. I think there's a there's something we're, we're really quick to criticize the church, but if you could see behind the curtains off from a weekly basis, like I get to see where somebody will be hurting and all these people are like, how can I give? What widows can I take care of? Hey, uh, you go to funerals and the church just gathers. Have you ever been to funerals where nobody's part of a church? Sometimes it's the saddest thing you've ever seen. It's really sad. Instead of seeing church as a group of people with competing interests, I don't like that color. I like this color. Or adversaries who get in the way when you want to get something done. We need to see each other as friends, caretakers, mentors, counselors, the arms and feet of Jesus. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 5, there's a really strange story. There's this guy who was sinning against God, and he didn't want to repent, and he was bringing a bad name to the church. So Paul says, if that guy doesn't repent, kick him out of the church and hand this man over to Satan, as if he's safe inside the community of the saints. But outside, it's dangerous out there. I think we've lost that, because when I don't like the church in this town, I just go to the next town. But there is, I think, as the day is approaching... And as the world is deteriorating, there is going to be an adversarial sense to the church. And we're going to need each other more and more. We just are. When you see the church for what it is, there is more tenderness and compassion than you can ever believe. More tenderness and compassion you'll find at a bar. You go to a bar, there is some tenderness and compassion after a few beers. But stop buying the drinks. And it doesn't, it's not too tender anymore. It's a lot more tender compassionate church than a country club. In fact, it's kind of judgmental at a golf club. And even at a sports stadium. Sure, there's tender and compassion when your team wins. Why? When they lose, everybody walks out alone. <laughs> no tenderness and compassion there. It's fluke, it's fickle, doesn't work. The church is a blessed place of filling. It's a place of belonging. So with Jesus, you have significance. With the Father, you have acceptance. With the Spirit, you got empowerment. And with the church, you have belonging. You're full. So when you really begin to understand this, you should begin to see just how blessed you are. 
God is daily trying to pour into you, and when you allow it, there's no need to go looking for filling from just people who flatter you because you have it from God. And then when a person's full, he can then go pour into others. That's what verses 2 through 4 is all about. The whole thing is about when you are filled, you can fill others. Pour into others. This is the great thing. Listen to how he says it. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one mind. How? How do I do this? How do I pour into others? Well, he gives the answer in verse 3. Verse 3, he says, here's how you do it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility. Humility is how you do it. Humility. It is often said that humility is the one quality that makes every other quality in a person taste sweet. Whereas, pride is the one quality that makes every other quality taste like poison. You can have a kind person who is humble, and they are like being around a sweet, sweet vine. Have you ever seen a kind person that's proud of their kindness? Ugh. Ah. Makes you want to shave your tongue. Ah. Oh, I'm so sweet, aren't I? No, you're sickening. But a kind person, a truly kind person, doesn't really even want to be seen. They're just kind. My wife's mom was like that. Just kind. Humble means lowly, creaturely. The Latin has the idea of from the earth. Ashes from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. My dad liked to keep his kids humble. And he'd see me go, Chris, you know how the poem goes. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. If I had your face, I'd get back on the bus. He'd say that to me all the time. That's my dad. Kept, keeps you humble. It's a weird guy. He'd always do that. But uh, I like the simple definition of humility as seeing yourself rightly. As one writer said, putting of the self in its proper place before the glory of God. Let me give you an illustration. If you, if you know what the Grand Tetons are, they're mountains out west and they're volcanic mountains. And out of nowhere, you can be driving down just the great wide open plains and all of a sudden out in the horizon are these mountains that just come up like teeth on the horizon, fork up. And a lot of people like to get a picture on the highway where they'll have their kid put their hand out like that and f picture it there so the mountains, it looks like they're holding the mountains. So they get their little four-year-old boy, Johnny. Johnny, stay there. Click, click. Look, you're holding the Grand Tetons in the palm of your hand, Johnny. Aren't you big? You're so big, Johnny. Daddy, I'm holding the Tetons in the palm of my hand. Then you get in the car and you start driving. The Tetons were there, and then they're there, and then they're there. And then you're a piece of sand on a side of a mountain. When you see the Tetons as they are, you finally see you as you are. When you understand the majesty and the supremacy and the awesomeness of God, you start to realize you're not that awesome. That's what humility is. 
putting of the self in its proper place before the glory of God. I often have to ask myself, why does this small man need to be seen as great when I'm really rather tiny in the large scheme of things? So Paul then says, all right, you want to know how to be humble? There's two things. You, one thing you don't do, and then one thing you do do. So what don't you do? Well, you do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Humility, when it comes to the idea of selfish ambition, means you, you don't create rivalries to be on top. You don't compete for the spotlight. You're not motivated by self-interest. You don't strive for aggrandizement at the expense of others. You serve. Humility does not fight for my glory. That's vain conceit. I don't need my five minutes of fame. So I was doing some research, and in my study, there's a new syndrome from social media. It's created a new syndrome. Among people, not just teens anymore, but all of us. It's called the main character syndrome. Main character syndrome is that people will take videos or Instagrams and where they're the main character in a large story. Often they'll interrupt subways. There's one in London. It's called the, I think it's called the tube video where ladies dancing. She's dancing in the subway and everybody's sitting looking at her like that. And she's dancing. And then it started doing a New York City subways, and the subways, all you know, people are the main character. Look, take a video, woo! Or some people will work out, you know, at Planet Fitness, and girls will work out at Planet Fitness, and they'll really be videotaping the guys looking at them, see how they look at me. They're the main character. I'm the main character in the story. Or you'll see those selfie lights, the round circles, and they, a person will go to the They'll purposely go to Paris to go to the Eiffel Tower so they can put a selfie light, orange cones, and then pose in front of it. You know, like, what, what's wrong with us? Nothing. I'm the main character of this grand story. And the way you can tell when psychologist says, the way you can tell you think you're a main character is you're unable to view yourself anything other than the main character. You have a lack of empathy for anyone seen as supporting characters, including your friends, co-workers, family members, or just extras at the restaurant while I'm filming myself. You have an overinflated sense of self-importance and entitlement. Fantasize how you're the hero. And you have a chronic need for external validation from others to boost you up because you're the main character. And this... Writer said it's, it's at epidemic proportions. Paul says, don't do this. It's not accomplishing the fruit that God wants you to accomplish. But what should we do then? Consider others. Consider. That means to proactively think of others better than yourself. Instead of trying to get your way, your needs met, have people listen to your woes and brilliant opinions, you start seeing other people's needs first. So no matter where you're at, if you're at a restaurant, if you're in a cafeteria, at work, that person you're with at that moment is the most important person in the world. 
Start seeing their needs first. Listen to their woes. Consider their opinions before your own. I was actually having a discussion with Will this past week about the difference in people. And it's to me, it's a great illustration. People can either be black holes or bright suns. A black hole is an outer space, an imploded star that sucks everything else in. And a bright sun is like in our solar system, which gives out heat and light. So the way to tell if you're a black hole is a black hole is the type of person who ravenously, ravenously craves the emotional support from everyone around them to feel better. It's like Bob Wiley. I need, I need, I need. (laughs) A black hole walks into a room and everything all of a sudden becomes about them. Life is sucked out of others when you're with a black hole. And the way you can tell you have been with a black hole is you're exhausted after you meet with them. Here's a very difficult question for yourself. Do people get tired and worn out when they spend time with me? Do they lean away and try to escape when they're with me? Or you could think of it like this. When a black hole sits in the corner of a room, and you're in a group, and they sit in the corner of the room, they will pout if nobody comes and talks to them. And often, they will blame the world for their loneliness. Now, a bright sun's the type of person who gives emotional support to others. They shine. And when people are around this person, they feel better and more alive. They feel refreshed, restored. They feel understood. When you're with a bright sun, you feel like, wow, that person gets me. A bright sun will walk into the room and people will smile. They will lean in. When this person sits in a corner, when a bright sun sits in a corner, people will start pulling up a chair to come talk to them. What are you, black hole or bright sun? That's the point. This is where the second question comes in. Why should I do this? Why should I be humble? Why should I give myself to others? And the reason Paul wants us to be humble is found in verses 5 through 7. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Listen. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as the person I claim to sing about up here. Who, being in the very nature with God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I like how one version says, that's something to grasp or hold on to or want. Rather, he made himself Nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Theologians love to discuss verse 7, because in verse 7 it talks about this idea of being made nothing. Being made nothing. What does it mean, being made nothing? It's called the kenosis theory. The emptying of self. Does that mean then when the son came, he left heaven and emptied himself of his omniscience, that means all-knowing, omnipotence, all-powerfulness, I'm the presence, he can't be all everywhere at once. Is that what it means? Maybe not. Some people think he gave himself up of the ability to give miracles, prophesy, read people's minds. 
That's not necessarily what it means. It means that he came and just poured himself out. He emptied himself. He poured himself out for others. How did he do it? Well, it's, he, in verses 6 and 7, it's really clear. The first thing, it says, even though he's in the very nature of God, he's God. He's God, but he didn't consider this position really that big a deal. He didn't grasp at it. He didn't tell the world, look, man, I'm God. You do what I say. He didn't grasp it. He didn't need to strive for significance. He didn't need to be seen as significant. The second thing is it said he served. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He served others. He's not here to impress others. He's here to give to others. He gave his life as a ransom for many. That's how you empty yourself. You serve. And then the third thing is he's not looking for approval, but rather he's made in human likeness. What is a human compared to God? A piece of clay. He wasn't here to impress anybody. He was here. Why did he do that? Like, it's a big question. Why did he do that? Because as they say, many men, many men have come to earth and tried to make themselves God. But only one God came to earth to make himself a man. Why did he do that? Because it says in Hebrews, he wanted to be made like his brothers so he could experience everything that we do. He loved being a man, and he's still a man. He likes being like us. That's lowliness. It's empathy. I like being like other people, even the lowest. I like them. Why should we do this? Why should we strive for unity? Why put others before myself? It's very simple because Jesus did. This is what brings us to the table. And this is verse 8. Verse 8 says, In being found in appearance as a man. That's what the bread is about. The bread represents his humanity that was broken for us. Being found in appearance means he became just like us in every single way. So he could take our penalty. He was found in appearance as a man. And then it said, by humbling himself, by becoming obedient to death. And that's where the cup comes in. The cup represents death. He died. The blood proves his death. Which means he satisfied the punishment that God demanded for us. That's humility. So verse 8 says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we come together to humble ourselves, to remember what he did so we can be more like him. Because I'll tell you, when you meet humble people, they shine. 